You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. some icy hot patches available for those who have fallen in the parking lot on your way out. <laughs> no, I'm, uh, hopefully you all made it in safely this morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Open the word together. I'm going to ask that you would uh, just pray with me as we begin. Ask the Lord's help and blessing on our time in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this morning fresh new grace has met us. You have, in your kindness, allowed us to see a new day, another day that we could come together as your body to worship you. You've given us, Lord, your word that has not changed since the last time we opened it. It remains true. It remains authoritative over our lives. It brings life, it convicts us, encourages, corrects, rebukes. Father, I ask that your spirit would use your word in any way you'd like in us today. God, we want to be changed by what you've said. We want you to speak to us, we want to hear from you. And Lord, we want Jesus Christ to be lifted high above all things in this place, and in our lives. Only you can help us do that in a way that is truly honoring to you. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us in that way. Help me to stay true to your word. Lord, we love you, and we give you all the praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So as has already been said, we're beginning a new series today that we'll be in for a little while uh, called In Christ. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, then you're familiar with that little phrase, In Christ, that oftentimes Paul and many others throughout the New Testament talks about this whole existence that Christians have in Christ. And it's unique to our Christian life, and we don't use that terminology for anything else. We might like sports teams, or we might admire certain people, or whatever else, but we never say that we're in that person. And uh, in fact, even trying to understand what that means in Christ, uh, I hope to scratch at the surface of that, and how the Lord has revealed that in His Word. That I think there's something that we can miss uh, when we lack our understanding of what it means to be in Christ. We talk often about, you know, is Jesus in your life? Is Jesus in my life? Jesus is in my heart, so on and so forth. But I feel like we we miss the other part of the equation when we don't talk about the fact that, are we in Christ? Because the Bible talks about it that way. And so I feel like we need to 
hopefully recover that. We're going to be touching on a lot of uh, very familiar texts. Uh, if you're familiar at all with the Word, you're going to be familiar with where we're going to be at in, these, in this series. Galatians 2 is, is certainly one of those places. That's where we'll be most of our time this morning. And I want to begin um, with this series looking at uh, just this idea that in Christ you're dead. <laughs> and that sounds like a, a strange phrase. But if you know this text, you know why perhaps I chose that. It's important. Uh, death is an important part of life. We do pretty much everything that we can to avoid it. Um, besides the ways that we eat, structure our lives, things that we do, whatever. We're trying our best not to die. It's what we're doing. But the fact is that we're not in charge of that. Yes, we can be good stewards of our bodies and take care of ourselves and so on, but if the Lord wants to take us, He will take us. And so we have this battle with death in that many, much of the world is terrified of death. Perhaps even as a Christian, you feel um, that occasional temptation to fear death. Maybe you're not afraid of death itself, but you're afraid of dying, the process of dying. I'm kind of strange for my, uh, perhaps for my age, or maybe I'm just strange, I, I don't know. But I, I often read the obituaries in the newspaper. I don't get the newspaper. I sometimes literally just go online to read the obituaries. Uh, I know, maybe you think that's weird. But I'm curious always as to how people summarize their lives. Or how families, I should say, summarize a person's life. And we've talked about this at our life group a little bit a few weeks back. But it's interesting that almost everybody's going to heaven in their obituary. I don't want to doubt, I don't know these people, but everybody's going to heaven. And people are becoming angels and all kinds of other things. And I'm not making light of any of that. And so those are people's pain dealing with the death and loss of loved ones. But I think it shows something about where people tend to look as they approach death and as they approach the death of those around them. Death is a normal part of our lives. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to die. In case you didn't know that, that was for free this morning. But the Bible has some interesting things to say about death. Not just how we think about death and that, okay, someday I'm going to die, I need to make some preparations. But the Bible talks about death in ways that are different than what we might uh, think from an earthly perspective. And there's death that must happen for us to live the Christian life. There's a, a necessity, or rather I should say a necessary death that must take place in order for us to be Christians, in order for us to be in Christ. Something must happen surrounding a death. And I think Paul hits at that here in Galatians 2, at least part of that. This is going to be sort of a two-parter. Next week we're going to talk about the other part of what it means to, that we're dead in Christ. Today we're going to focus particularly on being dead to the law. That's what Paul talks about here in Galatians 2. Let me just catch you up in Galatians. We're jumping in the middle uh, here of the letter. Galatians 1, 
Paul is writing to a group of churches. Uh, he writes to the churches of Galatia in verse 2 of chapter 1. He's writing to many churches. Galatia is a region, or rather was a region, that he's writing to. And so he's writing to many churches. These are churches that he's preached the gospel to at one point, And he is establishing in chapter 1 his authority as an apostle. Nobody here is an apostle. There are no living apostles today. Paul was the last apostle. He was sent specifically by Jesus to preach the gospel to those who had not heard it. He met Jesus face to face, and Jesus commissioned him for that. No one living has that same commission. Paul established his authority as that apostle because he has authority to say what he's saying. We're reading it right now, which means it has authority because it's coming from the Holy Spirit through him. And so he is claiming his authority, he's writing to challenge and correct behaviors, beliefs, and practices that have arisen in the churches of Galatia. He was once there, as I said, and preached the gospel to them, and he's trying to remind them of the gospel that he preached to them. He says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He goes on to say, there is no other gospel, by the way. There is no other good news. There is no other story. There is no other way. There is no other path that anyone can take to get to the Lord, to get to heaven, to get to salvation. And Paul begins his sort of some of his backstory towards the end of chapter 1, and that leads us into chapter 2. He's talking about how he eventually came amongst the other apostles, and he's seeking to verify with them that the gospel that he received from Jesus is the same as the gospel they receive from the Lord. But Paul says that he received nothing from the other apostles, merely, hey, this is what I received from the Lord, this is what I'm preaching. They said, yeah, same with us. Great. So Paul doesn't go to say, you know, tell me about the gospel. No, he heard it all from Jesus. And Acts chapter 9 begins that story. And then Paul's ministry as we know, and as he says, was to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised. Peter's was to the Jews, to the circumcised. And Peter shows up in, uh, in Antioch, in verse 11 now, I'm, we're in chapter 2. And I'm going to read starting at verse 11 here in a minute. But this is, if we wanted to try to set this in the context of the book of Acts, right around, right before Acts 15, it seems, Peter came to Antioch and fell into some sort of hypocrisy. Because some men came from Jerusalem, and before they came, Peter was eating with Gentile Christians. But after the men came, he separated himself, going back to the Jewish custom of, of avoiding Gentiles. But Paul openly opposes him, Peter, about this. And the issue ultimately had to do with how are people declared righteous before the Lord? If you read Acts 15, the whole church is trying to understand this. Can Gentiles actually be saved, and do they have to then become Jews in order to be good Christians? Is faith in Jesus enough to be justified? Or do Christians essentially, as I said, need to become Jews and follow the law and while also believing in Jesus? And that's what Peter displays through his actions. Paul, essentially, if we could summarize what he says, all from the rest of chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul's essentially saying, it's almost like you're not preaching the gospel with your actions, Peter. You might have preached it 
with your words, but now you're living completely contrary to it. And so, let's jump in at verse 11. Our text starts at verse 15, but verses 11 through 14 is uh, very helpful for us in understanding the rest of our text this morning. So Galatians 2 and verse 11. But when Kepha came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, Kepha, by the way, is Peter. It's his Aramaic name. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul goes on, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. You might ask, why talk about justification again? That's what we're talking about this morning, justification. Seems like we always talk about justification. How do you be made right with God? Well, we need a constant reminder that good works or being obedient to God's commands do not earn us anything in terms of our sentence of condemnation that falls on us because of our sin. Your good works, the good things that you do, your obedience does nothing in terms of your justification. Absolutely nothing. And we, quite frankly, live surrounded by a culture that I think is confused by that. Many of you come from backgrounds of, we might say, a legalistic tendency, where sometimes wires can be crossed, and it seems as though the message is, you need to get yourself right before the Lord, clean yourself up, become obedient, be righteous, and then God will declare you righteous. But that... What did Paul say? No one is justified by works of the law. Now, works of the law is not just, as we'll talk about, not just the ceremonial things. It's also following the moral law. No one will be justified by following the Ten Commandments. Only by faith in Christ. Nevertheless, as Christians, we are called to obedience. We're called to be holy as God is holy. Therefore, it's necessary to be regularly reminded and to remind ourselves of the proper place obedience to God's Word holds in our lives as Christians. Also, 
If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to hear that the path toward Christ is not obedience and doing everything right. The path towards Christ is faith and trust in Christ. That's it. And then he will deal with you about obedience after that. But you don't start with that. But we love to perform. I've said this before in other contexts. Everything that we do in our lives is based on performance. If you are employed at the moment, you probably sit down at some point with your boss and you have a performance review. They're not talking to you about how Joe did on his performance, and that credits you. No, you're talking about your performance. Students, you don't get a grade on your paper based on how Sally did next to you. It's your grade, right? If you're into sports and you do sports, it's not about how the other people did. It's about how you did. How am I doing? But in our Christian lives, it's not about how we did. It's about what Christ has done. And so it's completely different than everything else that we face in our lives. Martin Luther said, A Christian is not someone who has no sin or feels sinless. He is someone whom God does not blame for his sin because he has put his trust in Christ. It's important that we come back and understand justification so that we might understand, first, where did we begin in the Christian life? Second, how perhaps do we begin in the Christian life? And how do we keep going in the Christian life? Paul begins it. We'll start here at verse 15 walk through these verses together. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Paul is talking to Jewish Christians. In some of your Bibles, perhaps if you have an NIV, it puts all of the rest of chapter 2 after uh, Paul talks to Peter in quotations, as though this was everything that Paul was saying to Peter. Is that possible? Maybe, but I, I don't think that that is the case. But we do have to frame what he's saying from verse 15 on through the rest of the chapter in relation to Paul and Peter's conversation. If we miss that, we miss the whole context. We love Galatians 2.20. This might be a verse that you say often. But if you miss it from its context, you miss really the real meat and potatoes of what it's saying. So he says, we Jews ourselves, we ourselves are Jews by birth. He's talking to Jewish Christians. He says that earlier in other places in his letter. And then he says, Gentile sinners. If you're not a complete 100% Jew this morning, you're a Gentile. And according to the Bible, you are a Gentile sinner. But we'll find out soon enough that Jews are sinners as well. But that, the reason why Gentile sinners, or Gentiles rather, are called Gentile sinners, is because a sinner was someone who did not live according to the law. And Gentiles, to Jews, were sinners because they did not have the law, nor did they live by it. So they were called Gentile sinners. The word in Greek is ethne. Sometimes it's translated in your Bibles as Gentiles. Sometimes it's to the nations. Those of you that have a heart for missions, you think about need to go to the the nations. Well, it's the same word as Gentiles. So sometimes it means different things. Paul identifies this view that the Jews have of the nations or of Gentiles that but soon enough, he's going to show in verse 16 that Jews are guilty before the Lord as sinners just as much as Gentiles are because Jews need justification just in the same way the Gentiles do. Everyone has sinned, 
right? And fallen short of the glory of God. Righteousness is nothing else than conformity to the law. And sin is the lack of that. And so there can't be anything in the middle. There can't be, well, I'm, I'm just kind of godly, or I'm just kind of obedient. When you come before God's judgment, you're either righteous or you're not. He doesn't grade on a scale. He doesn't ease things up. So something needs to fulfill righteousness in order for us to be considered righteous because we already know that we're guilty before the Lord. We are sinners. All have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. No one seeks after God. Everyone's heart is deceitfully wicked. All of our minds are corrupt. So how do we get to righteousness? Verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He begins there. And really what he's saying in the midst of this, what makes Gentiles sinners, according to the Jews, that is that they don't have or they don't live according to law, does that not actually prove to be a means for justification for the Jews? In other words, just because we Jews have the law doesn't mean that that suddenly we're justified. Just because I have the law doesn't mean that I do it. Right? James talks about we need to not only just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. Right? Just because you know it. Same goes for us as Christians. Just because you know all of the facts about Jesus and know a lot of Bible stuff doesn't mean that you actually do it or have obeyed it. Right? And that's the danger living within a church culture that we can deceive ourselves perhaps that do I just know a lot of information about Jesus? Do I, do I actually know Jesus? Do I actually have faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Or do I just know about him? Can I win an argument about him? Can I talk theologically and quote Bible verses? Can I look like one? It's a danger. And the Jews faced the same danger. They had the law, and therefore they looked at everyone else outside of the law as though you're not justified. Well, the question that God asked was, well, you're not either because you don't do what I've said. The Jews having the law does not make them justified. I'm going to continue to use, as I talk about justification, I'm going to use the little phrase, declared righteous. Okay? Because justification is not about God making you righteous or creating righteousness in you. He declares you righteous. It's a judicial legal verdict. God is in the business of making sinners be declared righteous. He doesn't make sinners into righteous people. He declares sinners righteous through Christ. So it's important that we understand that and don't think that he zaps us with with righteousness and suddenly I'm so righteous now because God has made me righteous. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that you are made righteous. You're not made righteous. You're declared righteous. You receive the righteousness of Christ through no effort of your own. Because why? He received all of your sin and my sin on himself. It's a great exchange that took place there. Paul says, no one, no flesh, literally, he says, no flesh is declared righteous by works of the law. No one. 
even as we read the Old Testament, we have to understand that the intent of the law, this comes back to part of what we're talking about this morning, the intent of the law was never to lead people on to righteousness. Because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. If Paul is here saying in the New Testament, no one is declared righteous by works of the law, that doesn't mean he's changing something from the Old Testament. The intent of the law was never to lead someone to righteousness. We'll find, as Paul says in chapter 3, the intent of the law was to lead us to Christ. Because it shows us our need. It shows us how far, far, uh, far short we fall of the Lord. Paul says that we Jews, he's talking about Jewish Christians, we have also believed in Christ Jesus. Why? In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Faith means a certain and undoubted trust. I'm going to continue to use that word trust along with faith. Sometimes we, we empty the term faith a little bit and we think that it's just, well, you just got to have faith. Well, what does that mean? Let's, uh, let's, let's tie on trust, okay, to the word faith to help us get a better understanding of what Biblical faith is. Faith means a certain and undoubted trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for justification. And so, as Paul is going on here, he talks about Jews, Jewish Christians, have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. What's he talking about here? Jews that seek to be declared righteous through faith in Christ, if they are then found to be sinners, sinners meaning these Jews that seeking to be declared righteous through faith in Christ are at the same time being disobedient to the law, because that's what the Jews were finding. Okay, I've put my faith in Christ, but I'm continuing to see how disobedient I am to the law. I continue to see sin in me, that I'm not measuring up to the law, but my faith is in Christ. Does that mean that Christ is essentially saying, don't worry about the law? Just continue to be sinners? In other words, Paul's saying, is it that Christians are justified by faith to sin? Certainly not. But this is what, this is, think about Peter. Think about what Peter did. He was once eating with Gentile Christians, which was previously not allowed for him as a Jew. Eating with Gentiles was sinful because you might get, you might get uh, contaminated essentially by their sinfulness, their idolatry. It was a good command by the Lord to tell them to separate themselves from the rest of the peoples. Not because they were of a different race, not because they were different ethnicities, but because they worshipped a different God. But even as David read from Ephesians 2, God has done something in the gospel that that dividing wall of hostility is gone between Jews and Gentiles. So Peter, eat with the Gentiles. Go ahead. And we can, you can read in Acts about how Peter receives this vision from the Lord and all that that means. Yet, it was after he received that vision from the Lord and he still isn't getting it. This is the same old Peter that we know. Peter just never quite can just get it, right? 
And so the issue then is, as you struggle to understand putting your faith in Christ, even as, okay, we're not Jews, we're not living according to the law, we don't struggle with that or whatever, but you might struggle with, I've put my faith in Christ, but I still feel pulled towards sin in some way. I still see myself as falling short. How does this, how does this compute? Does this mean that he's okay with all of my sin? And it's just not a big deal, don't worry about it? Bah! Is that how God looks at it? You might allow yourself to go to that place. Calvin says, Christ did not take away righteousness, but stripped the Jews of their false cloak. Jews had thought, because, again, going back to what we've already talked about, because I have the law, because we are God's chosen people, because we've been given the law, somehow that for them, Calvin says, is sort of this false cloak that they wear that I'm okay. And we have this same struggle as Christians. If you've grown up in church, you just think everything's okay. Even in those of you that are younger, that have not yet made your faith actually your own, and you're kind of just riding on the coattails of your parents, you have a sort of a false cloak that makes you think, well, I'm just okay because my family's Christian. Well, no, are you Have you put your faith in Christ? Praise the Lord that your family is a Christian family. But have you put your faith in Christ? So Christ is not taking away righteousness. He's not just throwing righteousness out the door by saying, Jews, put your faith in me. It's not by works of the law you'll be justified. Put your faith in me. He's not just tossing righteousness out of the window. And we'll find out why in a minute. Because Christ has done something for righteousness so that you can put your faith in him. Christ is not a servant of sin. This is very practical for us. Paul says elsewhere in Romans, Are we to sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not, he says. But we can so easily think that that's normal Christian living. Let me just keep going. Let me manage my sin. Let me take control of this. I have this. I can can manage this. I can keep this from getting too out of hand. It's okay. God will forgive me. We're going to sing about Amazing Grace again Sunday, so it'll be all right. I'm not trying to be harsh, but we can allow ourselves to get into a pattern of thinking that it's just all okay. And it doesn't really matter. Paul says, Christ is not a servant of sin. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I I confess as I was just re-going through this passage again in preparation for this morning, you come to this verse and you go, okay, what, what are you talking about, Paul? What are you rebuilding? What are you tearing down? Why are you talking about being a transgressor? We have to understand what he tore down in order to first understand what he might be rebuilding. And the very fact he talks about being a transgressor is a key to understanding that. This is, again, it's important to frame this within the context of Peter and Paul and the, the correction that Paul brought to Peter. Peter was going back through his actions in separating himself from the Gentiles, when the Jews from Jerusalem, Jewish Christians from Jerusalem came into Antioch, he separates himself from the Gentiles. Peter is, by his actions, not believing in the gospel anymore. And going back to living by the law in order to re- achieve righteousness. 
And so Paul says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. In other words, if you go back to trying to be declared righteous through works of the law, and you've already tore that down by being a Christian, by believing in the gospel, you've tore that down, that's gone, that's no longer part of your life, that's no longer how you're trying to seek to be declared righteous because you can't. But if I try to go back and from the rubble build that back up, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Why? Transgressor is someone who disobeys the law. If a person rebuilds what he tore down, in other words, he's going back to being declared righteous by law-keeping, then someone like Peter, who has already previously broken the law because he ate with Gentiles, he's a transgressor. You have no hope, Peter. If you want to go back to trying to keep the law to be declared righteous, you've already broke the law because before the guys from Jerusalem came, you were eating with Gentiles. So you're a sinner. You have no hope, Peter. And by the way, as you walk away from Christ and go back to trying to keep works of the law in order to be declared righteous, you now say that you want nothing to do with Christ. And so you're also a transgressor in that way. You have no hope, Peter. That's what Paul says. And that's what he says for us. If you want to walk away from the offer that Christ gives in salvation, in that I have done the work, are we saved by works? Yeah, Christ's. His finished work, not our own. If you want to walk away from that and try to swim on your own, you're already without hope because you've sinned before. God doesn't say, okay, here's the starting point. Now begin following the law. And when you walk away from Christ, you're, you're saying, That's, I don't need that anymore. You're a transgressor. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You can't pick and choose. It's a quote here. The holiest men would be the most oppressed by the conviction of their sinfulness were it not for their conviction of Christ's righteousness, of which they become partakers through faith. The holiest men would be the most oppressed by the conviction of their sinfulness were it not for their conviction of Christ's righteousness. I always think about my grandma when I think about this. I think about the most perfect person in my mind who's just solid. But my grandma would be the most oppressed by the conviction of her sinfulness were it not for the conviction of Christ's righteousness in her life through faith. Nobody has any leg to stand on. William Perkins, he was a Puritan. He was actually the first Puritan in England. Commenting on this verse, he says, Believers in Christ are great offenders when Reformed religion, by that he just means right religion, Reformed religion and unreformed life are joined together, as they often are. He's talking about hypocrisy. For then, unreformed life builds the kingdom of sin that Christ has destroyed. We often talk about that our lives should be essentially like, if you think about our lives as, as sort of the dictionary page, and here's the word, next to Christian, next to that, the definition is my life. Does that prove that I am a Christian? If you looked at Nick's life, would you see, yeah, he knows the Lord, not perfect, But he knows the Lord, loves the Lord, trusts in the gospel, puts all his faith in Christ. 
But when our lives don't be or aren't that definition or doesn't support that, something's wrong, right? Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He begins for by saying for and going into what he's saying. He's saying, look, I'm not a transgressor based on what I just said. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor for. In other words, I'm not a transgressor by forsaking the laws, the means of my being declared righteous by the Lord. For through the law, I died to the law. Through the law. What does that mean? Well, any faithful, right telling of the gospel should include the bad news before the good news. When you heard the gospel for the first time, you should have heard, God is holy, God is righteous, you are not. Therefore, there's a separation between you and him. But Jesus Christ, his son, was sent on your behalf to live, die, resurrect, and if you put your faith in him, you will be saved. But you needed to hear that bad news first, otherwise the good news isn't that much better. Why don't we sing about amazing grace and think about these things, and it's so wonderful, because we know the bad news. We know that God is holy and righteous and good in all things, and we're not. And yet we can stand before him and be confident that we will stand before him and actually Stand before him. Who can stand before the Lord? The word says. Those who are in Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3.24 that the law was a schoolmaster or a guardian leading him, him to Christ, leading us to Christ. In one sense, you would not have maybe said it this way, but the law was part of your conversion to Christ. At some point... Maybe no one told you, let me tell you the law. Maybe you didn't read Genesis through Deuteronomy before you were saved. But you got a sense of God's holiness and righteousness. And you realized, I I don't come anywhere near that. What can be done? Theologians over the centuries have talked about the threefold use of the law. It's a mirror to reflect the righteousness of God when you read the law, when you read Genesis through Deuteronomy, and see all little bits of the law strewn throughout that. It's a mirror that reflects the righteousness of God. In it, in every single law, you see God's righteousness, His holiness, His goodness. It's a mirror to reflect the righteousness of God. It's also, secondly, a curb to restrain evil. We know, living in a society of law... People break the law, but most often people do not break the law, contrary to what CNN breaking news would like you to think. The whole world is just not bedlam, everybody breaking the law all the time. In other words, you would all not be here because you'd all be on the road getting speeding tickets, right? But not all of you, all of you went the speed limit this morning, right? The law is a curb to restrain evil. If I hear, do not murder, that doesn't make me not want to commit murder, but it certainly tells me that if I do commit murder, something bad's going to happen to me. And so it restrains evil. But some people still do break the law, don't they? Thirdly, it's a guide 
for the Christian in knowing what is pleasing to God. We can go back as Christians to the Ten Commandments, other moral laws we find in the Old Testament, and understand this is how I please the Lord. I shall have no other gods before God. Yahweh is the only God. There's only one God. I shouldn't murder. I shouldn't covet. Those things are good for the Christian, right? So the law is a mirror to reflect the righteousness of God. The law is a curb to restrain evil. The law is a guide for the Christian in knowing what is pleasing to God. Notice, though, what I did not say. The law has nothing to do with saving you. It's not meant to bring life. It can't. It wasn't intended to. As I said, the first use is all what we encountered before. And while we were becoming Christians, we saw the righteousness of God and that we did not measure up. And then God clearly displayed the separation between us and him because of his righteousness and our lack of it. But then the question comes, okay, Paul's died to the law. Through the law, I died to the law. What about good works in the Christian's life? James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? We want to talk about justification by faith alone. It's really what Paul is saying here. I'm declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's not faith plus something else. It's not faith plus works. My faith in and of itself cannot be a work. It's just trust. I trust in what the Lord has done, therefore I am saved. But James says, Faith that doesn't have works. Faith that is alone. Faith that does not have works that come out of it. You say, I'm a Christian. Okay. But I live like I'm not. Then you're not. If your life does not show any evidence of fruit, what evidence is there? You might say that, well, I believe. Well, yeah, have you read? Faith that does not have works, can that faith save him? The faith that justifies is no dead faith, but is always accompanied by graces such as self-denial, repentance, thankfulness to God, and it always produces fruit in the form of good works done in conformity to God's law and for his glory. Ephesians tells us that these good works were created beforehand by God for us to walk in them. He wants us. He wants Christians to walk and to live in good works, to live lives pleasing to Him. But all of that does nothing with the entry into being in Christ. It comes afterwards. The third use of the law, then, this guide for our lives as Christians, is what is helpful for us as now as Christians. If you're a newer Christian or you're just kind of in a season where you're trying to struggle with, struggle through understanding what does God want from me? What is God's will for my life? What should I be doing? Turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians 4, would you? 1 Thessalonians 4. This is a common question that we all face at one point or another. What is God's will for my life? What does God want with me? What am I supposed to be doing? Maybe you're asking that question this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3. Here it is. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
That's God's will for your life. That you be made holy. What does God want with you? It's not about, should I go here? Should I move there? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I marry him? Should I marry her? Should I go here? Whatever. What's God's will for your life? Your sanctification. Start there. (laughs) This is God's will. Your sanctification. How do you do that? You understand what is pleasing to God. How can I please God? How can I live a life now as a Christian because I've entered in through faith, through trust in Christ, not through my works? How can I now, living as a Christian, how can I please the Lord? I understand that I need to be holy as He is holy. He's called me to that. He's called me as a Christian to that. I know that God's will for my life is my sanctification, that I be made to look more and more like Jesus every day. And so I need to live a life of obedience, repentance, faith. Through the law, Paul says, back in Galatians 2, I died to the law. He's died to the law. The law was always meant to bring death. And no one was able to live up to it. There are really two deaths that the law brings. One of those you want to be a part of. The other you do not. The death that you do not want is your own spiritual death because the law exposes, again, as we've been saying, how far you are off from the righteousness of God. And without some kind of intervention, you fall short of God's holiness and righteousness. And your lack of that crushes you and it causes your eternal death and separation from God. There's no little jump point out of that at some point unless something intervenes in that. The law will bring that death to you because it crushes you, because it shows you you do not measure up. And is God unfair or unkind in that way? No. Because there's another death that you want to be a part of. That gets you out of all that. The death you do want is found in the death of Christ. The law and its implications is what brought about the death of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's death is a direct result of obedience and fulfillment to the law. In two ways. Christ lived a life of obedience, and He fulfilled the law completely. We're going to be in Ma- I'm going to read Matthew 5.17 in a minute. He's... Fulfilled the law. He's not abolished them. So he's fulfilled it in that sense, in that he lived the life of obedience. He he was actively obedient. Jesus was not Superman. He actually obeyed God, trusting in the Father, uh, depending on the Spirit in his ministry. He actually obeyed God. Yes, he's God, but he actually obeyed. He's not to say, in order to obey now, I'm going to invoke my God power. No, he actually obeyed. That's why when we have Christ's righteousness, it's actual righteousness. When he knows, when we say that he knows what you're going through, he actually knows what it is to be tempted and to obey in that setting. So he's fulfilled the law in that sense. But he's also fulfilled the law for us in that sense, in that when we come up to the law, we fall incredibly short. And our sin is just openly obvious. But God is, the Father has put all of our sin on Jesus. He made Him to be sin. Not to carry sin, not to deal with sin, but He made Him to be sin. 
So that as Jesus died on the cross, it was like sin. Our sin was dying on the cross. And that sin only comes from failure to meet the law. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He didn't come to relax the law. I remember reading in uh, it was some local newspaper thing or something, and it was like, ask a cop anything or something. I don't know. And the question was, um, how far over the speed limit can I go before you pull me over? And all of you probably have like the five miles per hour mark, or maybe if you're daring, you have the 10 miles per hour mark or farther than that, right? And the, the cop, you know, the person, you can just see that he's waiting for his question to be answered, and he's getting to the page, and it says, and it just says, go the speed limit. <laughs> That's what the cop said. And I text my friend, who's a cop in Columbus, and I said, hypothetically, if I was going one mile an hour over the speed limit, could you legally pull me over? He said, yeah. He said, I'd be kind of a, not very nice to do that, but uh, if I thought there was something else going on, I would do that, and I could use it as a justifiable means for pulling you over. Okay. But we, we think about this, right, with the speed limit. I, I, I'm, whew, I have a lead foot, okay? And I, I'm testing that line because, good night. Coming here through Strasburg, God bless you people in Strasburg. Uh, <laughs> 35 miles an hour on 21. Oh, my sanctification is tested every day <laughs> as I go through Strasburg. Because the people that go 40 miles an hour from Navarre to Strasbourg keep going 40 miles an hour in Strasbourg when it's 35. Why can't they keep that equation going before that and go 5 miles an hour over? Anyways, sorry. But the law is not meant to be flexed or bent. Neither is is it with God. And that's not what Jesus comes to do. He doesn't say, hey, it's okay. I've lightened it all for you. Five miles an hour over, it's good. No. He has completely fulfilled the law. And Paul, through faith in Christ, shared in the death of Christ, which freed him from trying to seek being declared righteous through law-keeping, which we know is impossible. Interesting way of thinking about this. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about uh, husbands and wives and when, uh, when is it a, a, admissible to remarry and these kinds of things. He says in 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. For us, if you think about it this way, we were married to the law. And the only way that that union could be broken is through death. But it wasn't the law that died, it was us that died. But now that a death has occurred, which was actually our own, that freed us from our union with the law, living to the law, living according to law, being crushed by the law, which is holy and righteous and good, Paul tells us. But now we're allowed to join to another husband, which is Christ. We're freed from the law. Through the law, Paul says, we die to the law. So that I might live to God. This is the result of the death of Christ we share in through faith. It means that we're no longer living to the law. We're no longer bound to the law. We're no longer relying on the law for the sake of our justification. We have died to the law through the law. The law was able to have its intended effect in God's plan, namely to lead us to Christ, to show us our need for grace and salvation through Christ. 
The law, if we try to live by the law, Martin Luther says, the law provokes a hatred for itself, but faith gives us a love for the law. The person who does the works of the law hates it. Inwardly, he wants one thing. In other words, not the law. But outwardly, he pretends that he wants something quite different, trying to follow the law. The spirit of faith keeps the law and instills a love for it. A person who has this spirit of faith fulfills the law in the best way possible, even though it appears on the surface he is struggling with his sins. It is through the law of faith, therefore, that Paul lives for God in his spirit. You want to keep the law in God's whole plan of everything? Your keeping the law is by having faith in Christ. That's the only way. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. In the Greek text, this is actually a part of verse 19. You can see how it's building up to that. It keeps it with verse 19. It doesn't really matter what verse it's with. It just chunked with that. It's where it's building to. How, Paul? How did you die to the law? Through the law. That you're now living to God. Here's, this is what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. That's how. Paul died to the law. The death that Paul died to the law, the death that we can die to the law, it's not his own, it's not our own. Because Paul's death, or our death, would result in our eternal death, our eternal separation from God. Only one man could die and thus secure such freedom from the law. And it wasn't us. But think about this. I know you know this verse, perhaps. You've recited it, thought about it, loved it, sung about it. I have been crucified with Christ. Think about that for a minute. How? How can Paul, not to mention us, say that we're crucified with Christ? Paul was not there on the cross with Jesus. Neither were us. Neither were we. You might know the old hymn, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? getting after this idea. But what is the entry point for being able to say, I have been crucified with Christ? How do I get there? How can that be true for me? Paul has given it to us already. It's faith, trust in Christ. You want to be able to say that you've been crucified with Christ, put your faith, put your trust in Christ. And you can say, I have been crucified with Christ. That's how. This is how Paul died to the law and how you and I do as well. This is more than dying to ourselves. Dying to yourself does not save you. Being crucified with Christ through faith and trust in Christ saves you. You need to be crucified with Christ. You don't need to die to yourself. I know why we use that terminology, but it's not helpful because it's not biblical. Surrendering does not save you. I love the hymn just as much as you do. I surrender all. But surrendering isn't even in the Bible. Look, it's not. Letting go and letting God does not save you. Also, not in the Bible. Dying to self, surrendering, letting go, and letting God are all things that you and I do. We're the ones doing it. The problem is nothing that we can do saves us. 
Nothing that you and I can do can achieve this death of the law. You cannot make yourself die to the law or make yourself be crucified with Christ. You simply put your faith and trust in Christ and you can say with him, I have been crucified with Christ. Because, see, part of believing that Jesus Christ has been crucified is not just, I believe that information. You have to also believe that I have been crucified with Christ. Yes, I believe that Jesus was crucified. I believe that he died. I believe that he rose again. But also, part of that is believing that I have been crucified with Christ. And I died with him. And I now live my life. What's he say? The life I now live, what's he say? I live by faith in the Son of God. We can't just be settled with just believing in information. We take part in that. Just as Christ was crucified and now lives, so was I crucified with Christ through my faith and trust in Him. Now I live. Now Paul lives. Now you live. That means it's no longer who I once was. I'm no longer who I once was. I'm not my old self. He's still here. Paul says, the life I live in the flesh. In other words, yeah, some of Saul, he's saying, is still here. I still feel him. He still wants to be Saul. You feel that, don't you? You still want to go back to that or this or this way of thinking, speaking, acting. You feel it there, don't you? But the, you ever think about this? The enemy that we're fighting, which is namely our old selves who has died with Christ, we're fighting a dead person. How much power does a dead person have? None. <laughs> right? He says, I'm not living by faith in my flesh. I'm living by faith in the Son of God. Why does he say the Son of God? Because all through this he's been saying Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Why is he saying the Son of God? Because through faith in Jesus Christ, we become sons in the Son of God. Galatians 4 talks about that. Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6.19, in this life that is truly life. Spurgeon once said something to the effect that it's not until we're in Christ that we're actually human, that we're actually what God has wanted us to be. When you are in Christ, you become what God intends for you to be. In His Son, therefore His Son. You're not God's child until you are in Christ. When you are, praise God that you are because you've been adopted by the Father. And he's not going to shove you out the door when he gets tired of you. Paul says, Life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's not just true for Paul. Jesus did not just love Paul. He loves you. He loved you and gave himself for you. He doesn't say, just give, give yourself to me. No, he says, I gave myself for you. Believe in me. Trust me. God gets to define what love is. 1 John 4, 8 and 9, God is love in this 
the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. What does it mean that God loves us? Look at the cross. That's what it means. That's how God loves. That's how God defines love, through the sacrifice of his son. That is the epitome of love. And the world gives us a cheap, useless version of love. God defines love as, I have given you my son. Finally, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What Paul is saying is sort of a repeat of what he's already saying. How how would Paul nullify or set aside the grace of God? Being declared righteous through law-keeping must have something to do with that answer. It's essentially for Paul to say, you know, Jesus' incarnation, his coming, living, Jesus' crucifixion, his death on my behalf, taking my sin on himself, his resurrection, raising to new life, his ascension into heaven, his promise to return. I'm just going to set all that aside, go back to keeping the law. Paul's saying, I do not set that aside. That's all God's grace. You want to talk about grace? Jesus is the answer to what is grace? What is God's grace to us? It's Jesus, the giving of his son, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, and promise to return. That is God's grace to you and I. And he says, I don't nullify that. I don't set that aside. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no no purpose. What Paul is saying is, I'm not going to set that aside. This is God's grace. This, this is the good news. Just a few points to end on. When we come to the law, the justifying righteousness which is required in the law is found in the gospel. Some of you are prone to legalism. Trusting in your works. It's just what you know. It's what you've been raised in, perhaps. You're good at it. Sometimes you feel like, in a sense, you're saying, I, I, boy, I, yeah, I know it's all about faith, but I believe so good. I believe so well. God is so pleased with me for my faith. God never tells us to have really good faith, does he? Think about the man who said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Our faith is weak, is it not? At times, it's a struggle. It doesn't mean it goes away, though. We reach dark periods in our lives. We reach hard moments where it feels like God is quiet. We don't understand why things are happening the way they are. We don't understand why things are going a certain way. And faith is... It's like, it's there, but I, could, I just feel like I'm barely holding on. Meanwhile, God is holding on to us. We can't, you have to fight against the temptation, friends, to go back to trying to live in a legalistic fashion in order to make yourself right with God, because you can't. It does not work. God is not, great job. I'm going to accept you now. He doesn't live that way. He doesn't operate that way. It's through faith in Christ and Christ alone. But it's so tempting, isn't it? To just perform. 
Because everybody goes, wow, look at that. And then you can start to deceive yourself to think that this is what is getting me acceptance with the Lord. No, it's not. It's only faith in Christ so that no one can boast. Some of you are confused about where the law fits in your life as a Christian. How do I put the law in the right place? Remember that third use of the law. It's a guide for believers in how we might live for the Lord and please Him. But it has nothing to do with how God accepts us or does not accept us. Resting in that truth that Jesus has fulfilled the law and through being crucified with Christ, you now, you can't get any higher than being in Christ. There's no like next stage after that. If you're in Christ, you're as high as you could possibly go with acceptance with the Lord. Can't get any higher. If, and this has a reserve, uh, residual effect through us as well. When you misunderstand where the law is in our lives, if God does not bind you with the kind of obedience that says, you need to obey me and clean yourself up and live uh, a life of perfect righteousness in order for me to accept you, we have to be careful that that's not what we expect of others. Because God has not bound us to that. We should not bind others to that. And we can preach the false gospel of saying, you need to clean yourself up and get yourself right before the Lord in order for him to accept you. We can do that so easily. And in the process, be lying to people and preaching them the wrong gospel, which Paul says there is no other gospel. If God does not bind us to that kind of thing, we should not bind others to that. But I know some of you feel, you see people's lives and you think, that doesn't make sense. And why, why are they doing that? And why are they living that way? And why are they posting that? We have to be careful that we're calling people to faith in Christ first. And then calling people to obedience once we know they're in Christ. But not obedience that means God doesn't accept you if you don't obey him. Obedience that flows out of a right faith and trust in Christ. Some of you are prone to the other side. We don't need the law. I'm dead to the law. I can do whatever I want. Grace. I love grace. What did Paul say? Christ is not the servant of sin. We're not declared righteous by God through faith in Christ in order that we may sin and just live it up. Because usually, usually people that talk like that say, God is, you know, he's so loving, so accepting. What did he say about how God defines love? It's through the death of his son. It's not cheap. Can't throw the law out. He still requires us to be holy as he is holy. He calls us to obedience and repentance. Continued faith. Paul says, the life I live now, I live by faith. It wasn't just I started this life up with faith, but I continue to live in faith and in trust in Jesus. Lastly, if you don't know the Lord this morning, or you've never come to a place of trusting in Him, you've maybe heard this a million times. Just hear me, please. You do not need to clean yourself up to come to Christ. You don't. 
Don't act like it. Don't pretend. Because he's not impressed. He wants you to trust in him, to believe. And I know you don't want to hear this. But I'm telling you, he's not asking you, get yourself together and then I'll love you. No, he already says, while you were weak, while you're at your lowest, Christ died for you. Put your faith and trust in Christ. Today can be a great day to do that. I'm going to close this in prayer and let's just ask the Lord to do what He wants to do through what we've heard. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that it pierces to the core of who we are, that you see us for all that we are. Lord, I pray for some this morning that are struggling with this, struggling with understanding how you accept them. For the brothers and sisters here, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that their acceptance is found only through faith and trust in Christ. And that alone. For someone here this morning, Lord, who doesn't know you, hasn't taken that step, maybe it's just all information. You're here because someone made you come. God, please help them to hear your call to them. As you're calling them to believe and trust in Christ. I pray you'd give them peace and assurance once they've done that. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. I pray that you would apply it to our hearts. May we walk in your spirit, live for you, live by faith in the Son of God. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.